Good evening. Uh, Greg and Tia and I were talking earlier today about our shared appreciation for this text that we are studying, chanting, exploring together. And we all reflected and had similar stories about how it was uh, Dogen, Zenji, and in particular this text, the Genjo Koan, that um, in each of our cases sort of tipped us over, uh, like kind of like falling in love with the Zen practice, that it came uh, from this. And I was reflecting myself before coming in just now <coughs> that I think it's important to acknowledge and uh, each of you appreciate uh, yourselves. And if that's difficult, please receive my appreciation for each of you. Because what you're doing as you sit here and walk and sit and walk and eat and clean uh, is really the living teaching of the Genjo Koan. There are the words on the page which Genjo Koan means something like the koan of what's happening right now. Mm -hmm. So it's one thing to write about it, and Dogen does it, I'll say more as I go, but Dogen does it maybe as brilliantly as anyone. He points to the peculiar, mysterious, often painful, often wonderful now. And it's different on the page than it is when you're sitting hour after hour in your bodies. And often the second day of a retreat in particular can be quite um, challenging, shall we say. If it wasn't challenging for you today, please don't worry. <laughs> really. And if it was challenging for you, please don't worry. Either way, you are right on track. But it's one thing to write uh, and point, which I think is what Dogen is doing. He's trying to point us toward our own direct experience and illuminating aspects of our experience in a way that may be uh, helpful uh, in this strange journey of uh, being alive, of being a human being. <laughs> it's so weird, isn't it? I mean, really? <laughs> we get kind of used to it sometimes. We get a little bit like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And then we come and do something like this and at least like, whoa, really? I don't know if you had any of that today, but it's possible to have a little like, wow. So Dogen is pointing to things as they are, the how of how things unfold, or as Suzuki Roshi used to say, the truth of things as it is. And that truth uh, isn't on the page, and it's not even so much in my words. It's sitting in each seat. It's sitting in your seat. And probably the biggest difficulty we have is that we're looking around for it somewhere else. <laughs> and the text, I hope, as uh, 
I think I tried to count, but it's something like, I'm exaggerating a little, but it's almost a <clears throat> hundred years of collective study and practice with the Genjo Koan among the three of us. Maybe more like 80, but it sounds better if you say 100. So it's a lot of years working with this text. And the text is pointing us toward our own life and practice. Greg gave such a beautiful talk last night, so clear and cogent about these four key uh, aspects of being human and of practicing, or as Dogen would say, this uh, phenomena of practice realization. The two things that are one thing, practice and realization, that come together. And in the first four lines we see um, four perspectives, we might say, of practice realization, of being a human being walking a path. The first is, we might say in simple terms, the um, perspective of is. <laughs> there is. Right? And the second line is the perspective of is not. And the third line is leaping clear, right? Leaping clear of is and is not. And yet, <laughs> there's a lot to be said in that and yet. And I think it's really helpful to understand that Dogen, part of what makes his, his um, teaching so rich is that everything he's teaching is embedded in a context of hundreds of years of other teaching. So he's not making this up out of the blue. Everything he's saying is in reference to something else that has been said, pretty much. And then he adds his own punch. You know, I think the and yet, that's Dogen. But the first two, the is and is not, this is part of, um, in very early teachings, some of you may have read, it's called the Kachyanagota Sutta. Kachyana Gota, it's a, it sounds fancy, but Kachyana was a person. And the Kachyana Gota Sutta is a dialogue between the Buddha and Kachyana. And the Buddha basically says there are two false views. There are two confusions, two uh, uh, delusions that we fall into in our practice. And what are they, Kachyana? There are the first two lines of the poem. There is is and is not. There is, it's sort of a, he, he describes it in a philosophical context, but there is what he calls positivism or eternalism, the belief in a separate solid something. I am. And the second is, comes out of I am not, which he describes as, and this is misunderstood as a kind of nihilism. It's a kind of big, empty void. So either there's something or there's not something. This is our worldly mind. Mind is constantly ising and is nodding. <laughs> and the Buddha's big breakthrough was this leaping clear of the many and the one. This beautiful teaching of dependent co-arising. A teaching of pratika samupada, of the interdependence, the interconnectedness of everything. 
I think of it in there's a very simple way to uh, point toward that teaching which comes from um, Buckminster Fuller. He said, I seem to be a verb. I seem to be a verb. So this is pointing to that in between is and is not. Am I here or not here? Is there a self or not a self? Yes or no, good. So we have a kind of binary mind. And one of the beautiful things about reading Dogen, and you could, you could see the whole of the Genjo Khan as Dogen pointing to the many, many ways we fall on one side or the other. Pointing to the many, many different ways that our mind grabs and gets caught. And he's not doing this <laughs> because he wants to show us how smart he is and how dumb we are. He's doing it out of kindness because there's endless delusion, just as there's endless waking up. And so each, if we can read, we can read the text from the perspective of understanding the content. And as I said, it's quite rich, right? You can get the whole history of Buddhism in, under, in reading this one text. But there's another way to read the text, which I find equally, if not even more, interesting and useful, which is to read what Dogen is saying and to watch your own mind. <laughs> what? Or, I got it. Oh. You can watch yourself and how you're responding and reacting to the text. And if you read it over several decades, as I have, that will keep changing. It will keep moving. It's a living text, just as we are engaging in a living practice. So a few months ago, I was um, sitting a retreat myself. And it wasn't a Zen retreat, so we didn't get to chant like we do here. And uh, I knew that I was going to be studying and teaching on this text. And so every day, I would read silently, but read to myself the, not part one and part two, but actually the whole Genjo Koan. And um, I didn't try to understand it. I just read it through. Because his, his language is so beautiful, really. And what I watched for was, you know, what popped on the page. And over many, many years, different parts of the text have jumped out, you know, kind of grabbed me or helped me look back at my own mind. And this time around, um, the line that really uh, grabbed me happens to be the first line of part two in our chanting. Let's see if I can get it without looking. When Dharma, when Dharma does not fill your whole body and mind, you think it is already sufficient. When Dharma does not fill your whole body and mind, you think it is already sufficient. When Dharma fills your whole body and mind, you realize something is missing. Now, doesn't that seem totally backwards? To me, I just I kept getting caught on that line because I was thinking, wait a minute. If Dharma is filling my whole body and mind, then I should be, it should be really good. 
But no, dharma filling my whole body and mind, if it doesn't fill it, then I feel sufficient. When the dharma fills my whole body and mind, I know there's something missing. How does that work? So for me, this is one of those, was one of those places that I think is quite intentional in the way that Dogen is writing, which is that he, he's pointing to something that makes our mind go, whoa. Right? He's asking us to, he's challenging our familiar perspective. And he's inviting us into uh, an alternate perspective that may feel initially like it doesn't make any sense. He's providing doors and windows for us to see the nature of our own mind and to see the nature of reality and to see the relationship between our mind and things as they are or things as it is. Such a really beautiful, generous teaching that he offers. So you might try tomorrow when we chant or on your own at some point as you read the text to listen to the words, but either concurrently or even predominantly, pay attention to your own mind. The Fukanza Zengi, another text from Dogen, he says, it's about the practice is about taking the backward step, turn the mind around and look inwardly. So this is, this is instruction for how to read this text. So you can read it from a uh, word, 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 understanding perspective, but you can also uh, read it from the perspective of, you know, sort of self-illumination, right? Because it's going to keep pointing you. And mostly what it's going to point you at is the places where you are caught or holding a particular view or perspective that you may not even know you're holding. But because you're bumping up against something that seems, as I described in my example, totally backwards. It's, oh, wait, there's something going on here I don't understand yet. This is a great invitation. (laughs) For many, many years, I've been using this metaphor to describe this phenomena, Uh, which is, it actually, I found out recently, comes from Zen, which I I either didn't know or had forgotten. So the The image is that we as human beings are all walking around and we're looking at the sky through a straw. (laughs) Is that the sky we see? Sure. Is it the whole sky? No. So there's nothing wrong with the slice of sky that we have. It's the real sky. It's not right or wrong or good or bad. The problem is that we hold on. We cling to our little slice of sky as if it's the big, the whole truth. This is not a small point at all. If we, I was suggesting that you read the Genjo Koan from the perspective of reading, looking at your own reactivity. If you try reading the newspaper or some kind of magazine or something that's reporting what's going on in the world, with the understanding of uh, all of us humans holding on to our little slice of sky. Inside that slice of sky is what we know, what we understand, what we believe, our views and opinions. Again, fine to have views and opinions. 
You can't, you're always going to have a perspective. There's no such thing as getting rid of it. What you can know is that your slice of sky is a limited slice. Because what happens is when we don't know that, and again, often we don't even know we're holding on to a slice of sky, we just think that's the way it is, right? Whatever it is. That's where Dogen is so brilliant, is he's pointing out places that make us go, oh, maybe I have a view, maybe I'm holding on to something I didn't even know I was holding on to. Whoa. Yeah? So that holding on to our views and opinions, what happens when we bump up against somebody with a different view or opinion? For me, when I read the newspaper from this perspective, it helps me understand the seed, the source of so much pain, so much suffering, so much misery in our world because it's those rough edges, you know, those circles of sky bumping. There's another aspect of this metaphor that I think is worth mentioning, which is that in addition to the painful aspect of what happens when we bump up against other sky circles that are different from our own, there also is the phenomenon, sometimes on retreat like this, we can start to really feel it. You know, no matter how comfortable our little circle of sky may get, you know, the stuff we know and all that we've accumulated and, you know, close to 100 years of studying Genjo Koan, for example, um, at some point we start to get how tight it is, our circle. We start to feel the pinch of it, right? And we have, I think, in all of us a deep, deep longing for a bigger sky. Now, our confusion is that we imagine that that bigger sky is not right here. (laughs) Bigger sky isn't somewhere else. It's just about softening those edges, right? I read a story about Socrates, and uh, it was interesting. I'd never read this before. It said, I don't even know if this is a true story, but it was good. It said that um, someone came and told Socrates that he had been voted the wisest man of his time, something like that. And Socrates sort of laughed, and he said, well, if being wise means knowing how limited you are, then I'll accept that, you know, designation. So knowing is one thing. Knowing is about accumulating information. Wisdom, wisdom is about letting go. Wisdom is about recognizing what we don't know, recognizing uh, that there's always a bigger sky. There's always more. So we might think of practice realization as this sort of odd combination of bumping the edges of our sky circle um, and simultaneously discovering a bigger sky. Because those two things come together. Delusion and waking up come together. Practice and realization come together. They're two sides of the same thing. So what what I want like to do that I hope will be helpful is to um, bring in another set of teachings from Dogen that I think uh, I found very useful in supporting the capacity 
to have, to allow for these kind of shifts in perspective, for opening the straw, if you will, for allowing a bigger sky. Because we might think that we want, you know, to be floating around in the big wide sky, but actually it's often kind of disorienting, can be frightening, can be wonderful, can be many things. And so um, Dogen in the Tenzo Kyokan, it's so wonderful to be in a, sitting in a Zen center where the kitchen is so much a robust part of the whole of the practice. Right? So Tenzo Kyokan is Dogen's teachings for uh, the kitchen. And uh, when you go to bus your dishes to the sink, you see those three little circles? Big mind, no. Big mind, kind mind, joy mind. So I want to speak a little bit about these three minds as a support to our practice or to practice realization. To, there's a line from yesterday where Dogen says, uh, those who have great realization of delusion are Buddhas. <laughs> those who are greatly deluded about awakening are sentient beings. This is another one of those lines that makes you kind of pause, right? So we're waking up to our delusion. We're waking up to our confusion. That's what Dogen is pointing to. And it's hard to do. It's hard work. It's not just hard because your knees hurt or your back hurts or your heart hurts or your mind hurts. It's hard because we like to stay comfortable in a certain way in whatever it is we know. And it takes a lot of courage and a lot of tenacity and a lot of kindness to stretch. So here are these three minds that Dogen points to that I think of as being supportive perspectives or attitudes that we can call on, that we can remember as part of our practice as we engage in this uh, process of practice realization. So again, just to say that the, these minds are not, um, they're not emotions. They're not feeling states. They're attitudes or perspectives. So they're a little broader than we might normally think. And the first we'll start with is joyful mind, kishin, joyful mind. And I don't know about you, but especially on the second day of retreat, someone brings up joyful mind, I might just want to smack them. <laughs> because um, this is the, the point is that if you're having a joyful mind now or any point today, again, please don't worry. Enjoy your joyful mind. But um, the, the pointing to joyful mind that Dogen is doing here, this capacity, this uh, perspective of Kishin, is not about being happy. It's bigger than that, right? Happiness comes and goes. Something happens that's pleasant, we get happy. Something happens that's unpleasant, we get unhappy. That's our normal, deluded, reactive mind, mind and heart. Ki shin, the, the word shin is both mind and heart. So uh, pointing to ki shin, to joyful mind, is not um, encouragement to be happy. 
And uh, even more importantly, it's not encouragement <laughs> to pretend that you're happy when you're not. It's like the worst. So please don't do that. Please be exactly where you are. And as we come into a retreat setting like this, we can begin to notice our habitual, ongoing, sort of thick, especially at the beginning, reactivity. Right? So basic Buddhist psychology says that every moment of experience has one of three flavors. Chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry. No, it has one of three flavors, one of three tones. It's pleasant, it's unpleasant, or it's what's called neither pleasant nor unpleasant, kind of neutral. Most of the neutral experience in our normal life we just miss. It's not loud enough. Or we say, that was boring. <laughs> but we're very wired to notice pleasant and unpleasant experience. And we are kind of reverbing most of our life, bouncing, right? So pleasant experience, pleasant sound, pleasant sight, pleasant emotion, pleasant sensation, pleasant memory, whatever it is, pleasant. What happens? Pleasant, I like it, <laughs> grab. It has now become unpleasant. <laughs> and the flip side, right? Unpleasant experience, pain in the back, pain in the knees, pain in the mind, pain in the heart. Unpleasant experience, don't like it, don't want it, reject. So most of the time we think we're in charge, but actually we're just getting batted around in our life by pleasant and unpleasant moments of experience. Boing, 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 boing. And what happens as we sit retreat, we see it. We can actually see that much more clearly than we can when we're running around in the world. And at first we might think, I'm doing something wrong. No, you're seeing clearly. You're waking up to your delusion. This is our fundamental delusion, this reverb. And something else will start to happen. As you see it clearly, as you begin to settle into the first day, the second day, the third day of retreat, and ultimately in your bodies, in your hearts, in your minds, in your lives, that settling, the reverberation may continue or it may get quiet, but something else is there. That something else has its own quiet joy. Don't look too far for it. It's right here. Right? It's seeing, being with the reactivity without adding. Just letting it be. Right? If you shake up a jar of water and you put it down, all on its own, it'll eventually just shh, quiet down. And then there'll be more, and it'll quiet down. So your job in this kind of joyful mind is about being with that. And the way that we know we've cultivated this capacity for a joyful mind, for ki shin, is not because we get really happy. That may happen again, or it may not. The way we know that Kishin is at play is because we feel grateful. We feel appreciation for everything that's happening, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. We say, as we do in this beautiful practice, thank you very much. This is joyful mind. Appreciating our life as it arises, exactly as it is. Mind number two, kind mind. 
it's, there's two different translations, but I like to call this, it's Robaishin, grandmotherly mind. This is the one that I'd really like to um, emphasize for today. You know how there's a difference between being a parent and being a grandparent, or for those of you who aren't, who've had a grandparent versus a parent? A parent may have be fully loving of their child or not, but also has a lot of responsibility. A grandparent, different relationship, right? <laughs> I had two very, very different grandmothers. One does not fit this description. Right? So <laughs> grandmotherly mind is a mind of care, nurturing, deep, loving, listening, attunement, attention, like that. So I had one grandmother who didn't do that very well. I'm not going to talk about her some other night. But um, my mother's mother, Helen, we called her the goody grandma, my sister and I, because she would come to our house in California from Chicago. And she was kind of like from the old country, like right out of the shuttle. She lived in a, in a big, essentially Jewish ghetto in Chicago. And she would come in her wool suit and her roll-up stockings. And she'd get to our house and take all that off, immediately throw on this sort of schmata, this old house dress and an apron and her little slippers. And she'd go right to the kitchen and start cooking. That's why we called her the goody grandma. It was just a constant feast. And I, as a little girl, would go into the kitchen with her. And I'd prop myself up on the uh, countertop. And she, um, this is the sort of essence of grandmotherly mind. She would lean over and she'd squeeze my cheek and she'd say, New Bubala. I can say that because I'm in Brooklyn, right? Most people know what I mean. New Bubala, she said, how, how are you? Tell me everything. This is grandmotherly mind. This is a, a quality of kindness, of interest, of curiosity, of receiving our experience with these. You know, she had these soft, wrinkled hands. Can we receive whatever it is with that quality of kindness? For those of you who might have some thought like, yeah, 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 a kind mind, like, okay, whatever, I want to get to the real stuff. Here's a story from Dogen. So Dogen, the next time you read the, uh, the list of the ancestors, you'll see that Dogen is there. And then after Dogen comes Koan Ejo. And after Koan Ejo is Tetsu Gikai. Well, it turns out Tetsu Gikai was Dogen's star student. But you notice, he didn't get you know, the, uh, the, uh, the robe in the bowl. Dogen didn't pass on the lineage to Tetsugikai, even though he was the obvious one to get the, the uh, transmission. And when Dogen was dying, he called Tetsugikai in, and he explained to him why he wasn't going to pass on the uh, lineage, the teaching, his teaching lineage to Tetsugikai. And he said, it's because you have not yet cultivated Grandmotherly mind. Hmm? So here's the good news. Tetsu Gikai was really a very sincere and dedicated student. 
and he, he heard what Dogen said. He didn't understand, kind of like me with that line in Dogen, like, what? What? I thought I was doing what you told me to do, right? Now you're pointing over there. So Dogen was pointing outside his straw to something else. But he had enough faith in Dogen and in the practice that he took it in, in a very sincere way, and he went about in his way wanting to really understand what was Dogen talking about? What is that? And so Dogen passed on the lineage to Koan Ejo, and Koan Ejo then passed it to Tetsugika. So there's a sort of happy ending to the story, even though it took a little while. So don't worry. If you don't have that kind mind yet, it's never too late. And it's really important. Right? It's no small thing. This is central to, it's embedded in Dogen's teaching. I was telling these um, Tia and Greg this story about an uh, encounter I had with of my early Zen teachers, in which um, <laughs> this is a confession. I um, came to him very excited because I was I was in a sort of hugely zealous period of my early Zen practice, and I was always taking like every week I was taking on a new practice that I was going to do to. You know, no, like get the gold ring, something I thought that I was going to get. So in this case, I was taking on a practice called putting others first, a compassion practice. Seemed really like a good thing to do. And um, I, was, I went into Doksan, and I was describing this new practice that I was doing with a lot of zeal and maybe just a touch of pride. <laughs> so I'm describing, I'm taking on this practice called putting others first, and isn't that great? And then I go on to describe why I'm doing it, because I am sure that if I put others first, if I do this putting others first practice, that it will help me unravel that tight knot of self. There was a long and uncomfortable silence <laughs> after my report. So uh, this was kind of like Dogen pointing to something that I, I couldn't see. And uh, after much longer than I was happy with, uh, he looked at me and said, someday you will understand that you have it completely backwards. It's kind of fierce kindness. Hmm? I, um, was slower than Tetsugika. It's taken me a long time, really, to understand the truth of that. So I'll share uh, a dream because it so captures the essence and, in some ways, my own finally catching on to the importance of this key teaching. For me, when something really, really lands, it often shows up in a dream. As a, as a teaching. So instead of from the outside, it's a teaching now coming from the inside. So in this dream, I'm walking in the countryside, and uh, I see this beautiful house. And there's a woman standing on the porch, kind of outdoor porch of the house, and she summons me to come. So I walk down this long path to the porch of the house, and she calls me inside. And um, there's no talking, but I just follow her, and she brings me into the kitchen. And in the kitchen, there's this very large basket. It's full of puppies. 
And it's clear, again, she doesn't say it directly, but it's clear <coughs> that in the dream, I'm, I'm supposed to pick my puppy, like the puppy that's just for me. Right? And what do you do? You look at this huge basket of puppies. They're all so cute, but I find the one, the puppy that's for me. And I reach down and I pick it up, and I'm holding it. Little puppy, totally cute little ball of fluff, and I'm holding it up. It's looking at me, and I'm looking at it, and all of a sudden, bangs on the puppy. And I did just as you did in the dream. Something's gone awry. And then I have an insight. In the dream, I realize, oh, the puppy is scared. And I hold the puppy, and it is snarling, and I just stay with, stay with, stay with. And as I hold the puppy and don't flinch, love the puppy just as it is, the fangs recede, and the puppy starts to soften and it begins to morph and change, and the puppy turns into a little baby. And the end of the dream, I'm holding the baby to my chest. Powerful, grandmotherly love. This ability to be with, particularly to be with our difficulty, but to be with whatever arises to hold it, to hold it with our steadiness, with our care, with our full attention, and to let it do its dance. Because if we can really meet things just as they are, they will transform. So I will say a few words about big mind, Dai Shin. Big mind is sometimes translated as great mind or magnanimous mind. It's the whole sky. There's a beautiful phrase in the Tibetan teaching of big sky mind. It's the mind that can hold many, many, many perspectives. Right? So in the first line that I read, when Dharma does not fill your body and mind, you think it is already sufficient. When Dharma fills your body and mind, you realize that something is missing. And then he goes on. Some of you may remember this from this morning. This is probably my single favorite line in the Genjo Koan for, for the last number of years. He says, for example, when you sail out in a boat to the middle of the ocean where no land is in sight and view the four directions, so imagine you're out in the middle of the ocean, which Dogen did. He took a trip from China to Japan and back. So he had this experience, being in the middle of the ocean, and you look around, and it looks like a circle of water, right? Just like it looks like a circle of sky. We're changing metaphors here from air to water. Dogen uses both in the Genjo Koan. When you sail out in a boat to the middle of the ocean where no land is in sight and view the four direction, the ocean looks circular, and it does not look any other way. But, he says, the ocean is neither round nor square. Its features are infinite in variety. It is like a palace. It is like a jewel. It only looks circular as far as you can see at that time. All things are like this. 
So it's like a palace, it's like a jewel is actually meant to demonstrate other perspectives. So it's said that for a fish, the ocean is like a palace. And for a god looking down on the earth, the ocean appears as like a, a huge jewel, like a jeweled necklace. So for us, from our perspective, we may see a circle. But from others' perspectives, they'll see different things. I always have that image come to me of the first time I ever put on a snorkel mask. And I remember standing at the beach looking out across the surface of the water and it looked a very specific way. And then I put on the mask and looked down. <gasps> wow, this is big mind. It's that shift in perspective that happens when we allow ourselves not to take our limited, the inevitability of our limited perspective as an insult, but to take it as an invitation to this infinite possibility. It's not because you're doing something wrong. It's because it's endless. It's boundless. The reality itself, practice realization goes on and on and on. <laughs> I can't tell you how much, how, for how long that drove me nuts. And I thought that I understood this teaching, like practice realization is ongoing, of course. And then I would have some degree of realization, something would shift, I'd see something anew, sometimes small things, sometimes big things, and then I'd be disappointed because it wouldn't last. And what I really saw was that I thought, oh, this is it, I'm done. This is heretical. There's no done. And no done doesn't mean that you stay in this grind. Not being done means that you and I and all of us together have this infinite world of possibility that if we are willing, if we can cultivate this settling, stilling, the quiet joy that comes from really landing here in our bodies now, moment by moment, if we can bring this quality of grandmotherly mind, of meeting what arises, particularly those difficult places, with kindness, with our wholehearted attention and care and curiosity, to be willing to stay with what's arising, then we have an opportunity to have this vast, mysterious, beautiful world that Dogen is pointing through, pointing to throughout the Genjo Koan, uh, open. It becomes uh, our playground. It becomes one treat after another. Right? If we're in the perspective of thinking that we're supposed to be there already or that there's somewhere to get, this is a big problem. <laughs> but again, if our perspective shifts and we start to understand, oh, I get to keep opening and learning and growing now and now and now, because practice realization happens together. It happens together for each of us and it happens for all of us together. And as we do that, we will uh, allow these kinds of shifts in perspective to keep coming, to keep arriving, to keep allowing us to see more and more of what is to be seen.
looks like time. <laughs> so um, please uh, take whatever you've heard this evening that is useful and um, use it, chew it, digest it, bring it into your practice. And uh, for anything that I've said that was not so helpful or useful, um, you could let it go. Or you could consider that maybe there was something being said that you don't yet understand, as you wish. Um, I hope that my words this evening have um, helped uh, point and uh, orient you in a way that will continue to support the deepening of your practice and of this field of Dharma that we are co-creating together. Thank you very much. And attention equally Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.